There are a lot of things we have that are amazing, but we take them for granted. Have you ever seen those videos online where the person being recorded is colorblind and their family gets them these specially made sunglasses that actually allow a person to see colors even though they've never been able to before? Of course, everyone in the family wants to see their reaction the first time they put on those glasses. So they all go outside and there are usually some brightly colored balloons nearby and the birthday person opens up this package to find a pair of sunglasses. Nice, thanks for the sunglasses. And of course, everyone encourages them to try them on. And what happens when they put those glasses on and they are now actually seeing colors instead of everything being black and white or just having shades of difference. Their reaction is always amazing. In many cases, they're just so overwhelmed by the colors and overcome by emotion, they start to cry because of what they're seeing. In that moment, everything has changed for them. They see everything differently and they notice every single color. But for most of us, we walk around every day seeing all of these vibrant colors and we never have a single thought about it. It's just our normal. We often don't understand or appreciate something until we're able to see the difference between having it and not having it. My guest today, Chris, can attest to that. Like most of us, he grew up having hands, a left hand and a right hand. They were right there with him for more than 40 years always doing what he needed them to do. But today, the hands that Chris uses are not the hands he was born with. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, 
Here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You've said that you had a feeling that something was not quite right that day. How long did you feel like that before the actual accident happened? This happened on the 28th, which was a Friday, 28th of November, 2008. The day before was Thanksgiving, which I had celebrated with my family. So then on Friday, um, got up early, um, did a few things. My, I remember my parents were in and out and I had mentioned that I am going to Carlisle for the day to help my friend harvest corn. And so I drove down and got there around 7.30 in the morning and had the feeling of something is not right, but I could not put my finger on it. That feeling did not last very long, maybe a few minutes or so. And then I just continued on with my routine, routine being checking the machinery out to see if everything's intact, uh, There's everything's going to be operational, looking for any un, unforeseen issues that could cause a problem. And how old were you at this time? I was approximately 41. So you were taking the day after Thanksgiving just to go to help your friend harvest some corn. And for the listeners who are not familiar with corn harvesting, and I include myself among that bunch, what's the process? What kind of machinery is involved? This machinery is a dated piece of machinery, probably built in the 50s. It's uh, mostly all mechanical, and it connects to a power source, which would be a tractor. And the tractor has a drawbar that hooks this piece of equipment and then puts it in motion or gets the mechanical operation is what they call a power takeoff. And it's a drivetrain that it's driven off of the tractor's engine, but also it drives the piece of equipment. And then behind this corn picker is a wagon, which is a gravity box inside. It's sloped with it's sloped inside. Once it's full, gravity empties the wagon. So how this machine works is, you know, stocks of corn in rows, the planter actually plants them specific amount of specific inches apart. It's um, shaped like a V in the front. In the in the V, there's these chains. They're called gathering chains. They've got little ears on them. So what this machine and those chains do is actually pulls the stock into the machine, and then right below those chains is two sets of rollers. And these rollers are approximately about an inch apart, just wide enough apart for a stock to go through it but not allow the cob of corn to go through it. So it actually pulls the stock of corn down through the machine, through the rollers. And once it gets to the cob, the next part is it actually will clean the husk off because the husk is already dried out at this point. There's these rubber fingers in there that clean off the um, silk. Then it just goes up through an elevator that is chain driven with a rubber paddle that, carries the corn up the elevator into the wagon. Throughout the day, I, I was um, walking around the machine, make sure there was no issues. 
Well, I was having issues with those chains that I spoke of. One of them kept falling off. And so I was talking to the farmer and he says, why don't you just take that, take it off and just use one? And I'm like, okay, that's a good idea. So fast forward back to the around the time of the accident, um, going through the field. It's already dark. Oh, so you've been, you've been working all day by now. Oh yeah. It's, it was all day and it took me all day to just fill this wagon up around five o'clock. I had noticed that the wagon was starting to overflow with corn. And mind you, I, this was my last row of corn to be done for the year. That was as soon as I get to the other end, I was done. Well, I stopped, left the tractor run with the PTO running, got off of the tractor, exited, walked around. I see the ear of corn laying in the, in the V shape, went to bat it in with my hand, my left hand didn't go in. Went to do it again with my left hand. And that time, the chain that was left, I, I feel, I don't know, it happened so quick. The chain had grabbed my cuff of my coat, pulled my hand into the rollers. And at that point, my left hand was in between those rollers, which I said was an inch apart. And they did not spread. It just stay, it's stationary. It stays. And I can add a little bit of more um, detail to the rollers. The rollers actually... Spin at 12 linear feet per second. So if you just imagine 12 foot loop two by four, that's it's in one second it's gone through. And that's what happened to my hand. I do remember hearing a thump and then initially pain. And then I'm like, what do I do? Um, quick reaction was reach with my right hand. I reach with my right. And at that point, both of my hands are now in the machine. Can you describe what what's the actual damage to your hands at this time? Are they being cut up? Or are they being squeezed into a really tight place? Or what's actually happening to your hands? Well, honestly, at that you know, being there looking at it or thinking back now, I mean, I'll explain what you're what you're asking. But back th- back then, I I had no idea what was what happened. I mean, it's just it was like what. How do I get out of this? So what is happening is those rollers being only an inch apart, it's actually squeezing it. It actually crushed. It crushed my hand. It actually, the doctors had told me later, it degloved, took the skin right off of my hand. So you're standing now with both of your hands there in the machine. At this point, I was not standing any longer. I was, I was kind of hunched over when it first happened with my left. And then once I reached with my right, I was actually in kneeling position, kind of like picturing like I'm praying over this machine. I had my head down. I'm stuck in this machine because at that point, my hands are down. I couldn't move. I couldn't pull them back. I was doing everything I can to pull out, but being in so much pain, I had a baklava on. It's a like a, like a hat, but it had an opening in my face. So every time I would turn my head to scream, it would actually cover my face. So it was muting the sound. But also that tractor was running at 540 RPM. So that means that that tractor was at high idle. This was loud. There was a state road, probably 75 to 100 yards away from where I was at. I was pointing the opposite direction. So I was actually, I'm actually in this machine 
and the road is behind my back and is behind me. I was actually going the other direction in the field to finish up. To my left was a house that was probably 50 yards. So I'm in this machine, trying to do everything I can to get out. Finally, I was like, God, let me die. God, let me die. God, let me die. Well, that third time, somebody had came. But what else is relevant is that from that house that I just said at 50 yards, there's probably another house 100 yards away. The people that lived in that house that was 100 yards away came over to the house that was 50 yards away and said, I think there's something going on there. Maybe we should go check. So at that point, when I said, after the three times, let me die, somebody comes, they had come. I found out later, because I went to visit those people, they were saying that, yeah, I was out earlier, but I only saw the tractor in the field. The lights were on and it was running, but I didn't hear anything. So I remember, you remember I said I was screaming out in pain. Well, that screaming out was not constant. Because, you know, at this point when I'm in this machine, I've lost a lot of blood at this point. So how long from the time the accident happened until someone showed up? That's a good question because I, I, I don't, I don't really know. When you're in a situation like that, time kind of changes. You don't really. It have does. Any- but what's interesting is that I do know a time, but it wasn't when they had come to show up when, when they came to find me. It was more, I recall how long I was in this machine before I was life flighted out of the place, out of the area. Vaguely, I remember, um, I felt it was start, uh, it happened around five o'clock and I did not get to Hershey Medical Center until 630. So that, that's how big of, how long of a window there was. I don't know how long it took for the, emergency crew or the neighbor to find me, emergency crew to get me out of the machine. I do recall them seeing the situation. The one EMT was there and he was telling me, you're going to be fine. Don't look at your hand because I guess he was concerned that I would pass out. I I couldn't understand why he was saying that. I mean, he really didn't know me. I mean, I, I, I grew up on a farm. I seen a lot of things and You know, he's just basically protecting me from passing out, apparently. Yeah, I'm thinking it must have been traumatizing, like before the EMTs showed up, just the people from the house coming over and seeing what your situation was. It had to be kind of traumatizing for them as well. Oh, I'm sure, because I remember when they came, I was like... You know, you and I are speaking in a normal tone. This was over this machinery. I was giving them phone numbers of who to call, call my ex-wife, call my mother and dad, call. And I was even rattling off the phone numbers just through all of this while my hands are stuck in this machine. Um, I think by that point, I was, I was the machine was already off. I remember them telling to sh- saying to shut the fuel off. The farmer, I had rattled off his phone number. So the farmer finally came. And he helped them get this machine apart. Yeah, I got to think, and EMTs aren't trained in getting people extracted from farm machinery. Well, in this area, especially 
Pennsylvania where there's a lot of farms around, I think they do have they're more and more they're getting a lot more training. Yeah, it's a good idea. I think they sh- they should be for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's actually this is kind of sidebar. I was at a bingo last night with my wife and um one of the firemen was there and I asked him, I said, Are you a fireman? He said, Yeah, and he's and I said, Hey, you want to see something cool? And I told him. And then he said, Yeah, farm farm accidents are very traumatic. So I know that they're being trained because it it wasn't like, oh wow, they you know I think it depends on where you're where you're located. So when when you were finally removed, you said you remained conscious. Did you look at your hands at all or could you see that they were obviously destroyed or what were you thinking? I actually only thing I recall was on my left, I remember my hand was hanging like by a thread, literally by a thread. And I think it's whenever the EMT said, no, don't look at that. I remember them saying things like, get the bird in the air. So they had a, where I live, um, it's called Life Lion. And so that's what this helicopter is called, the Life Lion. I remember being loaded on the Life Lion. And I remember them shutting the door on my right side and remembering how much pain I was in because I think they bumped what was left of my right arm into the door and everything's going happening so fast. I just remember that, that moment being in pain and then getting on the flight and they had their flight helmets on. So they basically couldn't hear anything I was saying with as much blood I lost and everything. They were having a very hard time, difficult time getting to my veins because I had talked to the flight nurse later on. And he explained that whenever you're in a traumatic accident, your body will take your blood flow and take it to your vital organs, your brain, your heart. The rest of it is it's not being supplied. And what else helped me, I think, survive is not pass out or die, that it was cold cold this time this time of the year in especially in pennsylvania in november so it was probably at five o'clock already it was probably in the low 30s at that point so you were airlifted to the hospital and was there any attempt to save your hands that's another good question but i do not know all i know is i do recall another thing that the flight nurse says hey i i know you're in a lot of pain we're going to get this we're going to get you taken care of basically give me whatever pain medication they administer. So it happened in Carlisle and I was going to be flown to Hershey medical center and by car, it's 45 minute drive by life flight. It was eight minutes. And during this flight, I never passed out. So we're flying and, you know, this couple conversations went on, but nothing was, you know, I don't think they've really even heard me. I was just listening what they had to say. Got to Hershey. We landed on helipad. And at the time, they were remodeling the hospital, building a new wing on. And to get into the emergency room was a makeshift tunnel. All I recall is laying on the stretcher and looking at the lights, like watching the lights go by. And I remember a nurse coming to me. Hey, she said, Mr. Pollock, you're going to be fine. You're at the number one trauma center. And at that moment is when I passed out. That's the last I recall. So I'm sure that I passed out because I guess I knew I was safe. 
I got there, I think I said around 6.30. I think I was conscious again until following day, and I do not recall the time. You know, at that time, my family was all contacted. My ex-wife was there, my mother and dad, my brother, my sisters, um, just everybody that had some relation to me, they were there. And um, I remember that doctor coming in with my, I think he was with my brother, and we were in the room, and he says, I want to, the doctor said, I want to talk to you. And he said, do you know what happened? And I said, yeah, I lost both of my hands. And that's pretty much where I left it. And he explained that, yeah, you lost your right arm four inches below your elbow or four centimeters. And they were um, dislocated. So basically your right side was basically taken out of the socket, the elbow joint. And we had to reset them and pin them together. And we um, also did um, a skin graft. So they took a skin graft off of my left leg to wrap this area where the after the amputation, because it was just basically destroyed from the machine, I guess, degloving it as well, as I mentioned earlier. On my left side, my hand was disart- disarticulated. So it was basically taken right off of the joint. And he explained how, you know, why we had to do what we had to do. He said, basically, everything was crushed, debris and dirt and grease that there was no way of saving it. Saving either side. That's where I was at with with that. I read that when you learned or realized that you now no longer have hands, Mm -hmm. that you decided immediately to turn the negative into a positive. Was it that quick? I mean, that seems like a, an impulse, like you didn't really realize the full gravity of what had happened. What, what are your thoughts on that? Right. And it's interesting you say impulse because um, it was quick. Yes. I I remember laying in my room where there was no one in there. It was just me. And I was saying that I am not going to take pity from anybody. I, mean, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but I am. So I was in the hospital at that point right after the amputations. And I, so I stayed in the hospital for two weeks. And during that two weeks, they had therapists come in, you know, occupational therapists, physical therapists. There was even a recreational therapist. And it's all relevant to why they came in because they were actually people take these things for granted. But at that point, I couldn't take it for granted anymore. You need to have learn how to do activities for daily living. So now that I have no hands, how am I going to brush my teeth? How am I going to bathe myself? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? So all, during all that time, that's all of that was trained. I trained to do all of those things. And then I also mentioned I had a recreational therapist and I remember this recreational therapist give me some literature on hand transplants and they were doing, so this is 2008, they were doing hand transplants in Louisville. Louisville was the first place in the United States that was doing hand transplants. And I think the guy, first guy that had them in Louisville had double hand transplants. And I think he had lost them by fireworks. Anyway, I read this story and 
it was interesting. Oh, wow, transplants. Um, but the part that I wasn't bought, sold on was the medication that you had to be on, where you had to go, being in Louisville for seven or eight months. What was it about the medication? I, I saw that you had rejected the idea because of the medication, but what didn't you like about that? I just, it was, it seemed to be a lot. At that time, I was on depression medicine and some others, blood pressure, cholesterol, that kind of thing. And I, I felt like I was taking enough already. And I didn't want to take any more. So that's, that was probably my main reason why I didn't do it at that time. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read. And I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully, that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida. So I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code WHAT or going to cookunity.com slash what. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I could get discharged, and then I had to be put into a another facility where it was a lot more training, a lot more activities for daily living. And at that time is when I was fitted. I was fitted for prosthetics. So I had an appointment to Hershey. I remember this facility I was at. I remember seeing this guy there. He had lost one leg due to a motorcycle accident. And there was this prosthetist in there working with him. And that's the guy that makes the prosthetics. And I just thought, wow, that's fascinating. The things he's doing to get him to use an artificial egg. And I just kept that in the back of my mind. And then I'm going. So I was given a name to a hand therapist in Hershey. She actually started training me right away and fitting and, and getting me fitted. So on my left side, I had um, what they call a farmer's hook. So what it is to picture what it looks like is it's a shell made of fiber, sort of fiberglass and some, I don't know, other material. But at the very end is a hook mounted to it, metal. And this hook actually rotates about 270 degrees and you can flex it. There's a little button, a little spring-loaded thing you push that you can flex it to either all the way to the left or all the way to the right. So you got some some uh, movement that way. And then how it operated was this hook had rubber bands around it, real heavy-duty rubber bands. And the hook had a cable attached to it that ran up the length of the shell of the prosthetic. And then it was hooked to a strapping system that actually hooked on both sides of my shoulders. It was kind of like, I'm going to say, it looked like a bra, but it was on your back. And so how you, how you operated was you just flexed your shoulders. You just moved your shoulders in or out. And well, if you moved them in, it would actually open that hook and then the rubber band would actually close it. So that was the first thing I was fitted for. And I remember my right side was so damaged at the time. And then with the skin graft, it took a lot longer for the healing process. So I couldn't be fitted right away. So. I would go to hand therapy, learning new activities for daily living. Even though I talked about activity daily living before, that's without my hands. Now I have a prosthetic. Had to learn how to tie my shoes all over again. And I learned how to tie my shoes with just that hook. It took me a little bit of time. I mean, of course, I don't have my right. And you, you know, you're constantly wanting to reach over there, even though your hand is not there. And that's where. You know, I know people talk about phantom pain, phantom sensations. Well, I had phantom sensations. It was more like, oh, I can feel like even though my right arm wasn't there, I um, could feel that I have a hangnail on my right. It's just, it was, it was kind of weird. That's incredible. Yeah. You had that right arm for 41 years. Yeah. You're still going to imagine that, that it's there. So you were tying your shoe with just your left hand with that. And the hook. Yeah. Hook. Yeah. Prior to this, were you, Left-handed or right-handed? I was right-handed for 41 years, and then this accident happened, and 
I did not know it at this point, but I started had started to learn to do things with my left, such the hook. Yeah, you were kind of forced into it at, at, at yeah. least at this point in the process, anyway. Yeah, and so at this point, when I'm going through this, I was like, I have no other options here. What am I going to do? Um, by then, I could learn how to hold a toothbrush with my hook. Um, the occupational therapists were the greatest because they always came up with these little things because they're taught in school how to how to deal with these kind of situations. And you know, I could use a fork and a spoon in that hook to feed myself. That was what was great about all of it. Is learning. Let me restate that. It's not that it was great that that's happened. It was, it was just great that oh, I'm, you know. I don't know how I'm going to get through, but I am. And that, that, that was, to me was a blessing. Yeah. You're gain you're gaining back a little bit of independence with each new exactly. thing you learn. Exactly. And so I'm glad you stated that because, you know, at this point I lost my independence. So I'm regaining it. My right side took a little longer to heal. It took probably six to eight months before they could actually, I could be fitted. And so I was fitted on my right side with what they call myoelectric. And so how it operated was, so picture my arm on this stub, you would put this silicone sock and it was, it was sort of tight. And at the very end of the silicone sock, it had a little pin and it was interesting how you put it on because you rolled it up and then you took a spray bottle with, or we had alcohol bottles and we put, and we sprayed it on the silicone and it actually made thing go on so much so smooth and my prostate showed me showed us that that was really cool the reason why i had to have that silicone sock is because this myoelectric there were little sensors on my what they call muscle bellies whenever you flex your hand or make a fist or move your hand a certain way there's different muscle bellies that are moving so what they do is they try to attach these sensors onto those muscle bellies so that when you do make those movements, so even though your hand is not there and you want to flex your wrist, you still are going to be able to move that muscle and it's going to open and close that prosthetic. So I was finally fitted and finally, they finally got it right and everything, all the sensors working and everything. However, I didn't like it because it just felt like an extension. It just felt like a heavy weight. Say, for example, just take an umbrella and you and you hold it straight out and you hold your arm as straight as possible and you just hold it out in front of you. Well, eventually you're going to get tired. It's just going to, because you got to, you have nothing to support that at the end. So it causes you to get tired and weak. And that's how I felt with the right prosthetic. However, I'm still grateful at this point because I'm being gaining this independence. All right. I would think their, their response to you for that would be, yeah, I know it feels that way now, but you just got to work up to it. You'll get used to it. You know, they, were they telling you anything like that? Oh yeah, they were. They, and, and I, I took that. I took it, um, took that advice. It just, um, I found it more, I actually could do a lot more with my hook than I could with the, my electric hand. You read an article about someone who got the first double hand transplant. Yeah. So this is actually in the new year by then. There was a story about the first unilateral transplant in Pittsburgh. I was just fresh out of the army. So I still had friends texting me and this one guy that I was friends with said, Hey, did you see that person they just transplanted in Pittsburgh? So I looked at the story and I wasn't interested. A few months later, 
I remember seeing a magazine at the Prostatis office about ACA, Amputee Coalition of America. And in this magazine, talked about phantom pain, phantom sensation, talked about what it's like living with the amputation. And there was also an article in there of Dr. Lee was talking to this one patient about she had viral meningitis, lost both of her hands. And she was going through some issues. And then he just talked about the article, just talked about that, you know, she could be a potential candidate for transplants. So I saw that and I'm like, I kept that in the back of my mind. And then around July of 2009, my parents had a people magazine sitting on the kitchen table. And I'm like, "Hmm, what's this about? And I see a picture on the front about story says about this Air Force veteran just had double hand transplants, wants to be able to hold his grandchild, wants to be able to bake again, and wants to be able to throw softball. So I go to the story, read the story, and it was just very inspiring to me of all the things he wanted to do. At the end of that article, there was some information of who to contact. I um, reached out to the number, contacted them the next day. And at this point, I thought about it, and I kind of was already sold on it, even though I just read that article. And they didn't tell me anything. They didn't tell me if I was accepted or anything. But I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm, I actually was thinking, what do I have to lose at this point? Because I had already been, it's already been seven months since I've had not had hands. The next day, they tell me, oh, yeah, you know, I had to be around 40 years old, had to be healthy, had to be below the elbow amputee. I was actually both below the elbow. So they're like, oh, yeah, and then why don't you come out? So I went to Pittsburgh. And that's convenient because you were, this was Pittsburgh. So you weren't, how far away were you from there? From, I live in Harrisburg. So it's about three hours. I mean, it could have been that that People magazine was talking about this guy that had surgery in California or something. Right. And at the time after I read it, it was done in Pittsburgh. That is, that is interesting. I never looked at it that way, but that's interesting. What was nice is my brother lives in Pittsburgh. So we stayed with him. I was there for five days and each day I had, Different things I had to do. There was psychological tests. There was psychiatrists, talk to social workers, talk blood work. And this is just to determine eligibility, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I um, went through this thing. And on the fifth day, I remember them doing phoresis. And what they do is they they actually extract from you because you're on this machine and it's actually hooked to you and it recirculates. And they keep these cells and they store them, deep freeze them to if you are a candidate and chosen that if you're you know once you have the transplants and something happens they can actually administer them back to you they were planning ahead yeah they were planning ahead and they they had they were pretty thorough so the five days i went through all that also remember going to talk to the doctor dr lee and some other doctors were in there and they're like yeah you're gonna you'd be a great candidate and the DOD was funding this. So it was all research. And I wasn't really thinking of any of that, but I'm like, I'm going to do this. I had nothing to lose. So they, like I said, they said, you'd be a good candidate, but you have to wait until a year post amputation. By then though, I was already seven months in past my amputation. So I come back home and go on about my life and, um, I was excited telling everybody and 
so that year, my children, I have twins, boy and girl, and they were um, going to turn 18. Going through all of that, getting out of the military, losing my job, you know, and calling all these insurances about all the different things about your tra- traumatic loss and all that, did all that. And then I said to my kids about, I was in, Ger- I was deployed to Germany in 2002. So I wanted to go back. And I said, what do you think about going to Germany for your 18th birthday? So I take, I go to Germany with them right before my transplant. So I come home December of 2009, called, put my name on a list. Two months to the day that I put my name on the list, they found a donor. So it had been February 3rd was the evening I was called. What were the requirements for a match? I mean, it seems like obviously blood type and size, but what? What were they looking for? Scott, there was so much. I, I still don't even really know the full answer. I just know that during all that blood work and they, I remember they, they drew 17 vials of blood out of me and they were testing for viral strands. I remember that was a big thing. They were making sure that everything matches up somewhat, somehow. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't have them, can't wrap my head around it to figure that out, but that's what they did. So, they had to find somebody that was of the, almost the same size. I tend to think of just like superficial things, like like you're a white man, and if a donor that was a perfect match otherwise came up and it was the hands of a black man, right? I mean, do you say no? I mean, it's well, better to have hands, even if they are going to look like they don't match your body, but maybe they don't even consider a match uh, like that. I, I don't know. I don't think that they're, they would do that. I really don't. I, I don't know the answer, but. No, probably not. I mean, there's, there's got to be other ramifications for that too, psychologically, or I, I don't know. But I mean, obviously that's not what happened anyway. So. No. So no, you, no, no. you found out that you were a match and what happened from that point? I guess it's this phone call, um, around 1130. That's 1130 at night. 1130 at night. Yeah. What's strange is that. Living at my parents, they had a landline, and back then, something had to be wrong if you were getting a phone call that late at night. So I decided to pick it up, and then that's whenever they said, we had found this match. We need you in Pittsburgh by 7 o'clock in the morning. This is 11.30 at night, so eight hours. I remember getting off the phone. My mother and dad were asleep. I had to wake them up. We got in the car, and we drove to Pittsburgh. We got there before seven and they said, Oh yeah, we're going to be doing your surgery in a couple hours. Well, something happened and it ended up being postponed until the fifth. Well, to set that scene, February 5th in that time of the year, February and in Pittsburgh, they get a lot of snow and it's maybe you recall this, but they called it the snow apocalypse. So DC got shut down. It, it snowed that hard. One of the doctors that did my microsurgery was from UCLA. However, he um, was red-eye flighted to Pittsburgh during this snowstorm. And the reason he was is because he was part of the team prior to my surgery. I thought that was interesting because as soon as my surgery was over, he had to go back to UCLA. I do recall them having an anesthesiologist come in and they, of course, put all their 
different connections to you to <laughs> connections. Yeah. But that's the last I recall because I think I was in and out of it by then because it was, you know, the medicine may have been kicking in or whatever. I recall the f- surgery being 11 and a half hours long. There was 21 surgeons and there was four operating tables. So they're preparing me on two tables. So there's a table on it under each arm. They're preparing that area. And then they're preparing the limbs off of the donor and another table. A little bit of what I know of the donor is that the man was from West Virginia, who's brain dead. And I know this because I could see it. He had red hair. I remember waking up the next morning and the doctor say, wiggle your fingers. But don't do, don't move them too much because, you know, everything's all the connections are new, all, you know, this with the sutures and so on and so forth. You don't want to break them right away, right? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But I moved them. I was like, wow. And so I, I had that in my mind that, you know, I'm getting transplants. My hands are going to work right away. I was uh, definitely put down by that because <laughs> that's not how it worked. Okay. Wow, but at least you had control of it. I mean, that was kind of that's what the sign of success they were looking for that you could move your fingers. That so they what they did had worked, right? I, but I think in my mind, I was thinking they're gonna, you know, I'm gonna have full function. But I guess that was uh, irrational to think that. So right after that surgery, of course, they usually try to get ambulatory right away. So they put me, I was out for 11 and a half hours and the full medication and they're trying to get me to walk just a little bit. And it's felt like it was 10 miles that I'm walking, but it was only a short distance. And I started doing therapy. It's hand therapy. It's like to, to make sure that to lower the swelling and just different things that happen after surgery. So they were trying to prevent all of those such things. Yeah, your therapy schedule was crazy. Yeah. In the beginning, it was six hours a day, five days a week. And they wanted to do, a lot of times they wanted to do more. They wanted to do on the weekends. And at that point, I look back and I'm thinking, wow, I don't, I can't do all this. I'm, I'm still looped up on the medication from surgery. And it seemed like it took for a couple of weeks for that to go out of my system and, and then all the different medications. So, before the transplants, they give you this medication that depletes your system of all immunity. So basically, you're susceptible to anything afterwards, after this. So basically, they're tearing you down, building you back up. After the surgery, I was in what they call TICU, Traumatic Intensive Care Unit. So I was in this TICU for two weeks, taken care of the whole time. Couldn't move my arms. I mean, they had... I have them in these uh, pillow type things made of foam to protect my arms. So oh, I know we talked about independence. So I lost my independence again, but now I'm regaining this independence. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about how long these occupational therapy appointments were. So they were f- six hours a day. And so I'm in the, in Pittsburgh now and it's, I was there for seven months. So from February to August and during that time frame of going through all these therapy sessions. So my routine was I get up in the morning. I stayed at this place called family house and it was a nonprofit organization that allows people to stay there depending on what kind of thing they're having at UPMC. Because I was on this um, research program, they actually paid for my stay there. But I had to have a family member be with me because they had to prepare my meals. I had it was like an old, sort of like an old hotel. So I would get up in the morning. My parents, well, whoever was staying me, they would people would stay a week at a time. One week it'd be my mother or my dad, whoever. I would go over to the hospital first thing in the morning. I'd have to go for blood work. There was a lot of transplant patients because they did a lot of transplants in Pittsburgh, but they all had to have blood work because their doctors were, you know, trying to get this medication levels to make sure everything's going the way it's supposed to. And I would get so frustrated because sometimes it would take an hour or two. I would sit down there for an hour or two. So that whole time, and I'm kind of a go-getter. I got to be in the, on the move. And then I was in the military and it doesn't help to just sit around like, what, what we called in the army, hurry up and wait. I, that's one thing I can't stand is, is sitting and waiting around for what, you know, and it's like, can't we process this or speed it up? Eventually, as anything is what I found out later, everything in life's temporary. So I would go through the blood work. It would be an hour late for therapy. And then by then I was thinking I was starting eight to two. That'll be my six hours. And then, of course, my doctors, they wanted to come in. They wanted to come in and see how I was doing. They wanted to do video, and they wanted to do this and do that. And I actually got to the point where, how am I going to make this time up? You want me to be, do this, you know, do well and do, do my best, but then you're coming in and taking away from my time. And so basically what it would do is when they come in, if they were in there for an hour, then I'd have to stay another hour. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, six hours, and I wanted to be done. I was just adamant about that. But again, it was temporary. Went through all that, you know, and those are just heart, little growing pains I went through. Went through that. And during this, during this therapy, I actually met the article I read um, in the People magazine. His name was Jeff Kepner. He had to come in and I forget why he was there, but he had to do some therapy and he was like, why are you working so hard? Like, I just want to get done. I want to go home. That's one thing about me, Scott, is I'm a, I'm a worker. I will stay at something until I am done. 
I don't, it doesn't matter what it is. I, I will, I'll work on it. I'm determined to get it done. And that was what I, I was determined. So I went through the therapy and that guy telling me that and backstory is I'm doing much better than he is. Hindsight is that therapy paid off. Finally, it came to time. I got to come back home. Going through all those growing pains in Pittsburgh that seven months, I was told that I'd come back and go to Hershey. And I, got, I actually got to go back to the hand therapist that fitted me for my prosthetics. All in all, I was there. Five, I went to therapy for five years. What can you do now with your new hands that you couldn't do when you first got them? Well, I always start off with this, and that's a good question. Always, People will ask me that. What can you do? It's not what can I do, it's how can I do it. I know that I have limited dexterity. I was a mechanic prior to losing my hands. I still have the mindset to be a mechanic, but I just can't do the, I just don't have the dexterity to do the that type of work. Again, determine is a word that doesn't leave me. I am determined to do it. I actually work on my own stuff at home. I have small engines like blowers and weed ears and slummers. And I, I do, you know, the, that kind of mechanic work on that stuff. It's basically, I'm not under the gun to say, oh, well, you need to get this job done faster. No one's pressuring me to do that. I can t- honestly say the only thing I can't do or haven't tried, I've not fired a weapon because now that I'm left-handed, you have to hold the weapon differently than you do when you're right-handed. And the other thing is I don't have the strength. I mean, even though pulling the trigger may not seem like a lot, I can't, I don't have enough strength in my fingers to do it. So you can move all your fingers. You, you just don't have the same grip strength as, as with your original hands. No, 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 no. A man can have anywhere from 80 to 100, 100 pounds of strength in his hand. You're like, that's a lot. I think the most I've ever had was 20. That's probably a good comparison of what, what I had and what I have now. But you know what? I don't discount any of it. Yeah, that's the way to look at it. Because, I mean, yeah, comparing it to a, a person that never lost their hands, yeah, you're a lot less. But comparing it to what you had when you were standing there in the, in the field, stuck in the machine, you're, you're miles ahead of that. Yeah, and then I can also say, I know this is a traumatic story, and we're, ta- we're talking about it, and what was it like kind of thing, and I'm telling all ins and outs. But, you know, there's other stories out there that I have no idea what it would be like because I'm not in those shoes. So I can relate. I can understand what's going on, but I, I, I've never lived it. So it gives me – it shows me to be more compassionate, I can say that, to respect what I have. Because we don't know what other people have gone through. Right. Let me ask you one final question. Why is it important for you, for people to hear your story? What's the message you want to get out there? It is an inspiring thing, an inspiring situation for people to hear because I know people, everybody in life has troubles. They don't care who you are. Sometimes telling your story you may tell to somebody that you don't even know what's going on and it can make their day much better whenever they see it and see what they've gone through and I have a good a, a quick story about my wife my wife and I met online but it was not a dating site and 
I posted my story about losing my hands and how thankful I was. And her story was she was going through a divorce and how hard it was for her. But then she's like, read my story and she's like, wow, this man, I cannot believe how thankful he is and all everything he's been through. My story is not that bad. And that's what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is that, yeah, you can't discount anybody's story, but you can also enlighten somebody's day by hearing the story. And that's what I felt that happened between me and my wife and I. And we just, you know, an ending note is uh, we've been married now a month. We've been dating each other for since 2011. I met her, actually met her for the first time one year, one year anniversary of my hand transplant. So you just got married. Yes, I just got married. And congratulations. I didn't even know that. Oh, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I just got married. We're living here in Pennsylvania and things are all good. Uh, I'm blessed, thankful. Life is good. Yes. If someone is hearing this and is going through something, maybe not losing their hands, but something traumatic or might be discouraged or whatever and would like to contact you, you've said that it's okay. We'll put your email address in the show notes so people can contact you if they would like to. Sure. Chris, thanks so much for sharing your story. Ah, You're welcome, Scott. My pleasure. The thing that struck me about this story is the outlook that Chris had right from the start. Okay, this thing happened to me. I can't go back and change what happened, but I can be determined to do the best I can with what I have. I really hope that if I ever have something like this happen to me, that I would have the same outlook. You can get the full transcript for this episode, and you can also see pictures of Chris and what he can do with his new hands in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 146. I did another episode that was kind of similar to this one, where my guest Jeff talks about losing his arm while he was working at a summer job when he was 18 years old. While that was happening, I'm... I'm pulling, trying to get myself out. But at this point, the machine actually started to pick me up off the ground and I was starting to be pulled in head first. And so at that point, I started screaming one because it hurt and two, because I wanted somebody to come turn the machine off because I knew that I I wasn't I wasn't going to be able to get myself out. And believe it or not, that episode will have you laughing because Jeff has a great sense of humor and there are definitely some funny parts to his story. That's episode number 100, called Jeff's Arm Was Torn Off. And now I am super excited to tell you about a new project, and it's one that you can be involved in. This is a great opportunity to seriously make someone's day. We all know that working in the service industry is a tough job. More specifically, I'm talking about food service. The hourly pay is really low, sometimes way less than minimum wage. So food servers have to rely on tips to make a living. These people work really hard, and they have to keep smiling no matter what's happening during their shift. So I want to make at least one person's shift very happy. This is where you come in. And you can participate in this at whatwasthatlike.com slash server. I'm asking you to kick in a dollar or two or whatever you feel like contributing. When it gets up to a substantial amount... I'm going to take that money and present it to a food server as a gift. This is going to be so cool to be able to tip someone like $500 
maybe even more than that. I honestly really don't know what to expect. I posted about this project in the podcast Facebook group recently, and the vast majority of people there are excited about this idea too. And just to be clear, I'm not taking anything out of this. This is being done through GoFundMe, so everyone can see their donation and everyone knows what the total amount is. GoFundMe will take out their fee, but everything else is going to go directly to someone who works hard and needs that money. So I invite you to join us in this fun little project. Go over to whatwasthatlike.com server and put in whatever amount you're comfortable with. And I'll have further updates here on the podcast and also in the Facebook group. If you're not in that group yet, that's at whatwasthatlike.com Facebook. I can't wait to see what happens with this. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now, once again, we find ourselves at this week's listener story. This is a story sent in by a listener. And since you're a listener, you could send in your story. Just something interesting, 5 to 10 minutes long, nothing elaborate. You can record it on your phone and email it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. And there's a pretty good chance we'll all hear it on a future episode. This week's listener story is from Cecilia, who is on drugs without knowing about it. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks. Hi, Scott. Uh, my name is Cecilia, and I love your podcast. And I just wanted to share this story because every time I tell friends or anything like that, it always gets a good reaction. So I thought maybe you or the listeners might enjoy. And I will preface it with saying it may be triggering to some people who have had bad experience with being drugged or drugs in general. And I also want to say I was in an incredibly safe situation. My life was never in danger. I was with my family the whole time and everything was totally fine. This is the story of the time I got drugged with meth. So I was with my family out of town and at a very Christian wedding of a family friend of ours. My parents, my family didn't grow up super religious. You know, we went to church every once in a while, but it was never very serious. And this was a very traditional, very devoted Christian wedding, I'll say. Like their first kiss was their I do kiss and everyone there was very straight-laced for the most part. They didn't have any hard alcohol, just wine and beer. And yeah, pretty much everyone was quite straight-laced aside from our table of family friends and stuff that were a little bit, I wouldn't say we're crazy or anything, but there was a group of us that was more delinquent than the rest. So some of my friends, our family friends brought in um, little shooters of hard alcohol and we were definitely the least, the odd men out there of the very Christian environment that we were in. And so from my perspective, I remember the first set of the band and nothing really after that. I have three flashes of memory. One is me looking at myself in the bathroom thinking, I only drank wine. Like, how did I get this drunk? I didn't drink that much wine. The second one is me running around as fast as I can trying to pick up all the bouquets of flowers from the table after the band had stopped to help clean up when everybody was leaving. I don't know why I was doing that. And the last one is me in bed in a ball, naked, crying with my sisters trying to make me put clothes on. And so from my family's perspective, the band played three sets. And after about the first set, I started going crazy on the dance floor. And and you all don't know me, but I'm I'm pretty reserved and I'm shy. I'm not a big dancer. I don't really... You know, I'm kind of in the background. I'm pretty shy. And so they 
they saw me on the dance floor with my fist pumping and my jaw clenched and looking like (laughs) I was, I mean, must have been having fun, but looking like a crazy person. And they were like, what is up with Cecilia? Like, we have never seen her like this before. And my stepmom almost immediately was like, she's on drugs. Like, I, I, she's definitely on drugs. That's not normal. And so they kind of honed in their focus on me. We got through the night and got back to our Airbnb at the time. And they were asking me, what did you take? What did you do? I was like, I didn't do anything. I'm just drunk. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I just drank wine. And eventually I started crying because they were asking me a lot of questions. And, you know, I was on meth, so. Um, was a little emotional um, and I wouldn't stop crying until my sister threw pizza on the ground and that made me laugh for a second and then I started crying again and I didn't know why I was crying and it was very emotional and I got through the night my family you know clothed me and wiped away my tears and <laughs> did as best as they could and then I got back to New York where I was living at the time and I took a drug test when I got back and I had methamphetamine and MDMA in my system so my best guess is that somebody else had molly water in their wine or some sort of liquid molly in their wine or something and I actually drank someone else's wine and I ended up being cut with meth I don't know I don't know how I got meth in my system but anyways weeks go by and then I see the couple post their um wedding photos on a Facebook album and I was like oh gosh so I look through the Facebook album and there I am lo and behold on meth in the background of all these wedding photos I look absolutely ridiculous I'm like jaw clenched, eyebrows furrowed, like arms up, looking like a person on meth. <laughs> you would imagine they would look. So yeah, that's how I ended up being on meth and probably one of the last places you want to accidentally be on meth at. And yeah, I, I tried meth just once and I don't think I'll ever do it again. Not, not on purpose, at least. Thanks for listening. I love your podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.